Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotel's family of 22 brands has over 7,400 locations and the perfect hotel for any traveler you want to be. Like a Cambria Hotel serving up locally inspired craft cocktails for all my folks who maybe want to meet up and talk about Mad Royals. Check into a Radisson Hotel with flexible workspaces for you strivers who listen during business travel. Or a Comfort Hotel with free hot breakfast, family-friendly pools, and big spacious rooms for the parents who listen with their kids and need a little retreat. What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. This is the return of Six Impossible Episodes. Uh, if you're new to the show, Six Impossible Episodes, it's kind of a series. We'll tackle six different topics that, for whatever reason, usually can't fill out an episode on their own. The first time that we did one on Mother Goose Rhymes, it was because of a listener request uh, for an episode about the Muffin Man. This was a... <laughs> a listener request from a child that had been passed on via an adult. That one was a lot of fun. And so the next six impossible episodes we did was another one. Uh, some time has passed now since those, those two, and I thought maybe we would go for a third. We have to start, though, with a caveat that folks who have heard the other earlier Mother Goose episodes will probably find familiar. A lot of these poems and songs were first published hundreds of years ago, and some of them might have existed for quite some time before appearing in a book or some kind of other print material. But most of the explanations for their purported origins are much, much newer, like in a lot of cases, hundreds of years newer. And usually, these wind up seeming more like somebody sort of trying to come up with an explanation that matches up with what's written in a poem rather than someone actually finding evidence that a poem referenced a specific person or historical event. They're fun anyway, though, so we're doing it. <laughs> and first up, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. The first known publication of this rhyme was by Samuel Arnold in 1797 in a book called Juvenile Amusements. Arnold was a composer and an organist who lived and worked in London. His version was a little different, though. It started out the same, but then ended, 
four score men and four score more could not make Humpty Dumpty where he was before. Some people interpret this as a riddle, with the answer being an egg. According to folklorists Iona and Peter Opie, who specialized in the study of childhood culture and published so much research on it in the last half of the 20th century, there are multiple different versions of the same poem-slash-riddle in other European countries, like Trilla in parts of Germany or Bula Bula in France. All of these similar poems seem like they are connected, but it's really not clear which of them might have been the first one ever to be composed. Also, Humpty Dumpty is often depicted as sort of an anthropomorphized egg, including in Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland, which came out in 1865. But the term Humpty Dumpty predates Samuel Arnold's publication of this nursery rhyme by roughly 100 years. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, it's been used since at least 1698 to mean a drink, quote, made with ale boiled with brandy. And in 1785, the word Humpty Dumpty was used in writing with a different meaning, that being a person who was short and squat and maybe kind of frumpy, especially if they keep their shoulders hunched. I feel attacked. A character (laughs) named Humpty Dumpty who had these physical traits also appeared in print before the Humpty Dumpty poem in the Lilliputian Riding School. That came out sometime between 1754 and 1764. So some people speculate that this poem is a reference to King Richard III of England, that the Humpty is referencing the way his body looked because he had scoliosis and the wall that he was on was a horse named Wall, and the falling down part is referencing his death at the Battle of Bosworth Field. However, the only references to Richard III having a horse named Wall that I could find, they all seem to be explanations of what Humpty Dumpty is about. I don't know if anybody else said at any point anywhere that he had a horse named Wall. Uh, The other thing that people point to with this a lot is... uh, that this could be Richard III, is that the all the king's horses and all the king's men is maybe a reference to the My Kingdom for a Horse line from Shakespeare's Richard III. There is also a completely different explanation, that Humpty Dumpty was a large cannon that was used during the English Civil Wars. In this explanation, the royalist town of Colchester was under siege by the parliamentarians, and they had this big cannon that they had nicknamed Humpty Dumpty up on a wall. Either the cannon recoiled when it was fired and fell off the wall, or the parliamentarians shattered the wall and caused the cannon to fall down. But either way, the royalist forces could not repair it. But according to the Opies, the source for this story is a series of fictitious nursery rhyme interpretations that were printed in Oxford Magazine in 1956, which people misinterpreted as being real. Yeah, I've heard this canon explanation a lot. Me too. And I did try to go and track down this original article to see exactly what it said, and I could not find uh, a way to get at it, so... I wish I could. Did not, did not successfully do that. So next, we'll move on to our next poem, which is 
Sing a song of sixpence, a pocket full of rye, four and twenty blackbirds baked in a pie. When the pie was opened, the birds began to sing, wasn't that a dainty dish to set before the king? There's also a second verse that I think people don't maybe say as much, which is the king was in the counting house counting out his money. The queen was in the parlor eating bread and honey. The maid was in the garden hanging out the clothes. There came a little blackbird and snapped off her nose. So we're going to look at this one in pieces. First, there are multiple references combining sixpence with singing going back to the 17th century, including a line from Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, which was first performed in 1602. That's Sir Toby Belch saying, Come on, there is sixpence for you. Let's have a song. In the 1614 play Bonduca by Francis Beaumont and John Fletcher, a character calls out, Whoa, here's a stir now. Sing a song of sixpence. So that bit's been around for a while. Next, allegedly, at least part of this was written by English literary critic and Shakespeare commentator George Stevens, who supposedly wrote it to make fun of Henry James Pye. Pye was named British Poet Laureate in 1790, and unlike most people who are named a country's Poet Laureate, Pye was not well-regarded for his verse... He was probably named Poet Laureate as a reward for supporting or doing some kind of favors for somebody in Parliament. Some sources point to William Pitt the Younger, who eventually became Prime Minister. A lot of Pye's contemporaries made fun of him and made fun of his poetry, especially his poems commemorating the King's birthday, which apparently were particularly horrible, at least based on what I read secondhand. (laughs) having also not found the exact poems they were talking about. Again, allegedly, one of these birthday poems was so bad that Stevens responded with, and when the pie was opened, the birds began to sing, was not that a dainty dish to set before the king? Pie, in this instance, was spelled P-Y-E, like Pie's name, and Stevens was supposedly inspired by a line Pie had written that referenced a feathered choir. This story shows up in a lot of sources, especially in works that were printed in the 19th and early 20th century, but it's not clear where it came from. Also, drawing some questions around this, the first written appearance of Sing a Song of Sixpence is in Tommy Thumb's Pretty Songbook, published in 1744, 46 years before Pi was named Poet Laureate. In that version, it is a bag of rye rather than a pocket. Naughty boys are who was baked into the pie rather than blackbirds. It is definitely possible that Stevens kind of recited a bit of a nursery rhyme that he already knew to make fun of Henry James Pie, though. There are several other proposed explanations for this rhyme, but none of them really seem to have any backup. Like, maybe this is a reference to King Henry VIII and the dissolution of the monasteries, and those four and twenty blackbirds are really choirs of monks singing and baking pies to try to earn the king's favor. Or maybe in those later lines of the second verse, the queen is supposed to be Henry's first wife, Catherine of Aragon, who he divorced, and the maid is his second wife, Anne Boleyn who was beheaded, and that the beheading is what's being referenced when the blackbird snaps off the maid's nose. 
Or maybe the blackbirds are a reference to 24 hours in a day, and the king and queen are the sun and the moon. Honestly, it all seems kind of random. I feel like this is a literature class where people are like, any interpretation is valid as long as you can back (laughs) it up with the text. In 1999, the website Snopes.com published an explanation involving the pirate Blackbeard using this song to recruit new pirates for his crew. The sixpence and the rye were the money and whiskey that these pirates would be paid. The blackbirds in the pie alluded to how pirates would lure the crews of other ships into a false sense of security by pretending to be in distress. This explanation went on from there, explaining each line in the poem as part of a code for recruiting pirates. But this was from a section of the website called the Repository of Lost Legends, or Troll. (laughs) They were supposed to be so obviously made up that no one would mistake them for real urban legends. In other words, Snopes.com was trolling people. But really, some of the articles in this section of the website are more obviously made up than others, like an article about how Mr. Ed was really a zebra, not a horse, accompanied by pictures of Mr. Ed, who was clearly a horse, is a lot easier to spot as fake than a made-up interpretation of a nursery rhyme that seems pretty similar to the many, many other widely repeated nursery rhyme interpretations floating around in the world that are, at best, barely connected to reality. Some people did wind up falling for this Blackbeard fantasy, including the TLC TV show Mostly True Stories, Urban Legends Revealed, which aired in 2003. Yeah, apparently later on they didn't exactly hear a retraction. <laughs> but they, in a different episode, they said the opposite. Uh, one possible inspiration for this poem is something we have talked about on the show before. Last year, we did an episode on the history of pie. And in it, we talked about a 1598 Italian cookbook titled Epilario, which included a recipe for baking a pie and then filling it with live birds which would then fly out when the pie was cut open. The Opies actually referenced this recipe as well as later cookbooks that referred back to it. They referenced that in their Oxford Dictionary of Nursery Rhymes. We are going to have more Mother Goose fun, but first we're going to pause for a sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs, and if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. 
Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com where travels come true. Say goodbye to complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping and say hello to an advantage with USPS Ground Advantage shipping from the United States Postal Service. Every business faces challenges, but shipping shouldn't be one of them. So keep things simple with clear, upfront pricing. And no unexpected surcharges for Saturday deliveries, residential deliveries, or fuel. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there, helping you counter the rising costs of doing business with a budget-friendly alternative. And keep things reliable with on-time ground shipping, ensuring your shipments get to where they need to go while maintaining your hard-earned reputation. USPS Ground Advantage is your ticket to easy, cost-effective, and dependable shipping. It's the complete delivery service your business needs to rise above the competition. There's never been a better time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. next rhyme is newer than some of the others that we have been talking about over this kind of mini-series. Here we go around the mulberry bush, the mulberry bush, the mulberry bush. Here we go around the mulberry bush on a cold and frosty morning. This is a song. I won't sing it because I'm bad at that. There are lots of additional verses, including this is the way we wash our face, this is the way we comb our hair, this is the way we brush our teeth, and this is the way we put on clothes. This 19th century rhyme is usually sung to an older tune, one that was first documented in the middle of the 18th century as Nancy Dawson. This melody is also used for another song with some similarities to Here We Go Around the Mulberry Bush, which is called Nuts in May. That one goes, Here we come gathering nuts in May, nuts in May, nuts in May. Here we come gathering nuts in May on a cold and frosty morning. The Opie speculated that the popularity of Here We Go Around the Mulberry Bush is at least partially due to Nuts in May already being a well-known song when Mulberry Bush was written. In their book, The Singing Game, Peter and Iona Opie mentioned the use of this song in Glasgow Infant Schools in 1834 as a way to teach pupils about hygiene and grooming, but with the verses ending to come to school in the morning rather than on a cold and frosty morning. 
And aside from the first verse about the mulberry bush, this really does seem like the kind of didactic song that somebody might make up to teach young children about things like cleanliness. It really has some parallels to the kinds of songs that we talked about in our episode on the history of Happy Birthday to You, which we ran as a Saturday classic not long ago. Many 19th century versions of this song start with a verse about going around some kind of plant, but they aren't consistent about what kind of plant they reference. The Opies point out that Thomas Hardy, born in Dorset, England, knew this song as being around a gooseberry bush, while T.S. Eliot, who grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, knew it as a prickly pear. In James Orchard Hallowell Phillips's popular Nursery Rhymes and Nursery Tales, a sequel to the Nursery Rhymes of England, which was published in 1849, it is a bramble bush. It's not clear exactly where the mulberry bush came from or how that one seems to have become the most common, almost standard verse. Mulberries grow on trees and not on bushes. And of course, trees and bushes, these are both constructed categories that we have made up to understand the world. But in general, trees have a central trunk, while shrubs tend to be smaller and have multiple woody stems. In 1994, Robert Stephen Duncan, who had been governor of H.M. Wakefield Prison, self-published a book called Here We Go Round the Mulberry Bush, House of Correction, 1595, H.M.P. Wakefield, 1995. And in this book, he claimed that this nursery rhyme was a reference to women prisoners and their children walking around a mulberry tree in the prison's exercise yard in the 19th century. And there was a mulberry tree there. It was removed in 2019 after dying due to a beetle infestation and other issues two years before. A replacement has since been propagated from cuttings from the original tree. It's not clear, though, what evidence there is to connect this mulberry tree to the children's song other than that both the tree and the song exist. Since this was a self-published book that came out in 1994 in the UK, we were not able to get a copy of it to see what specifically Duncan said about it or what kind of documentation there might be to support this idea but sometimes people point out the incongruity of a children's song possibly being connected not only to a prison, but to one that has now more recently become a high-security prison in more recent years than this song was originally written. Wakefield Prison has been nicknamed the Monster Mansion because of the notoriety of some of the people incarcerated there and the sometimes gruesome and horrifying crimes that some of them have been convicted of committing. But there are still other proposed explanations. One is that it's a veiled reference to early efforts to start a silk industry in Britain because silkworms eat mulberry leaves and those first efforts didn't go so well, which is why the morning was cold and frosty. There's also a bit about going around the mulberry bush in some versions of Pop Goes the Weasel, but that seems to be a very recent addition to a song that goes all the way back to the 1600s. Moving on to our next rhyme, Hickory Dickory Dock, the mouse ran up the clock. The clock struck one, the mouse ran down, Hickory Dickory Dock. This is yet another rhyme that appears in the 1744 Tommy Thumbs Pretty Song book, but with slightly different spellings. Hickory is H-I-C-K-E-R-E, and Dickory is D-I-C-K-E-R-E. Some versions of this rhyme say, down he run, instead of the mouse ran down, so that run rhymes with one. 
Others say down he ran, which feels more grammatically correct, but doesn't rhyme as well. (laughs) Grammar, another thing we made up to make sense of the world. Sure. Uh, The Opies describe this as a counting song with Hickory Dickory Dock possibly referencing the counting systems used by shepherds in parts of northern England. These systems grew out of Celtic languages like Cumbric and were widely used in some areas up through the 19th century. In parts of Derbyshire, Cumberland, and Westmoreland, 8, 9, and 10 were Hovra, Dovra, and Dick. Some of the purported explanations for this one seem like just another instance of two things existing without necessarily being connected to one another beyond the similarities that people spotted between them later on. One is the idea that this poem is a reference to Richard Cromwell, who was Lord Protector of the Commonwealth of England, Scotland, and Ireland for less than a year after the death of his father, Oliver Cromwell, in 1658. Richard Cromwell wasn't effective in this role at all. People described him as mousy and timid, and he was given nicknames like Tumble Down Dick. Another thing that definitely exists is the astronomical clock at Exeter Cathedral in Devon. And this clock is fascinating. It probably dates back to the 15th century, but its inner workings are a replacement installed at the end of the 19th century. This clock shows the hour of the day, the day of the lunar month, and the phase of the moon. And the door that allows access to the interior workings of the clock has a little hole for a cat cut through the bottom. This was allegedly made specifically because mice were running up and down the clock's mechanism and affecting its accuracy. So that door is so cats could get in there and stop that problem. This has led to some people suggesting that this specific clock is the inspiration for Hickory Dickory Dock. As a cat person, I know Tracy has some questions like, couldn't a cat do even more damage to the mechanisms (laughs) if they pounce on a mouse that's running around in there? Or perhaps just batting at machinery. I mean... Yeah. I mean, I can see what people are saying, but it also seems like a cat could cause definite problems. Um, yeah. I mean, you have to have a lot of trust that your cat is a pretty focused mouser with strategy that does not involve destroying other things. <laughs> Which seems like a big ask. <laughs> yes. So, Catherine Elwes Thomas takes a totally different approach to this. In her book, The Real Personages of Mother Goose, Thomas's work has been a major source in a lot of the interpretations that we have talked about in earlier installments of this series. She refers back to an essay on the archaeology of popular English phrases and nursery rhymes by botanist John Bellenden Kerr, which came out in 1834. He argued that a lot of English language rhymes that seem nonsensical were really written in Anglo-Saxon, which probably is what we would call Old English, and that Anglo-Saxon was, according to him, the same as Low Saxon. So Kerr claimed that in this Low Saxon, Dokken meant to give it once to give without delay. Ma, spelled M-A-E-G-H, meant stomach, Clock, spelled K-L-O-C-K-E, meant cloak or gown. Ran meant lank or wanting food. And strack meant immediately. So this was about someone in a cloak or a gown demanding to be given food immediately. In other words, 
This was a criticism of Catholic clergy demanding provisions from peasants while also lampooning the peasants who did as the clergy asked. A lot of Kerr's explanations of the purported low Saxon origins of idioms and nursery rhymes kind of boil down to anti-Catholicism in some way. This seems like the longest walk interpretation to me. Yeah, I tried to figure out there are languages and dialects today that are sometimes called Low Saxon, and I was, like, trying to figure out, is this is this the same as what, or is this something different? Like, I really was not able to confirm whether any of these words he was talking about aligned with reality at all. Right. And just the whole idea that these seemingly nonsensical English language uh, nursery rhymes are really totally different words in a different language. Uh, I found that both fascinating and baffling. So we're just going to take a quick sponsor break and ruminate on that for a little bit and then get to our last two rhymes. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs, and if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode, hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com where travels come true. Say goodbye to complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping and say hello to an advantage with USPS Ground Advantage shipping from the United States Postal Service. 
Every business faces challenges, but shipping shouldn't be one of them. So keep things simple with clear, upfront pricing. And no unexpected surcharges for Saturday deliveries, residential deliveries, or fuel. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there, helping you counter the rising costs of doing business with a budget-friendly alternative. And keep things reliable with on-time ground shipping, ensuring your shipments get to where they need to go while maintaining your hard-earned reputation. USPS Ground Advantage is your ticket to easy, cost-effective, and dependable shipping. It's the complete delivery service your business needs to rise above the competition. There's never been a better time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. Okay, Georgie Porgy putting in pie, kissed the girls and made them cry. When the boys came out to play, Georgie Porgy ran away. This rhyme was first written down in the 1840s, although initially it was not that the boys came out to play and Georgie Porgy ran away. Georgie Porgy ran away when the girls came out to play. In the 1850s, James Orchard Hallowell Phillips, who we referenced earlier, published a variant on this, which was roly-poly pumpkin pie, kissed the girls and made them cry. When the girls begin to cry, roly-poly runs away. The Georgie in this poem is often interpreted as George Villiers, the first Duke of Buckingham, favorite of King James I, and as referencing his affairs with the king and also with women at the court. So after breaking some lady's heart, George would run back to the king for his protection. Another interpretation is that Georgie is King George IV before his ascension to the throne while he was serving as Prince Regent. In this interpretation, the poem is making fun of him for his weight and is also referencing his relationships with two different women. One is Maria Ann Fitzherbert, who he wanted to marry so badly, even though she was Catholic. But under the Act of Settlement of 1701, only Protestants could take the throne, and anyone who married a Catholic was barred from taking the throne as well. That did not stop George, though. He married Maria Ann Fitzherbert in secret in 1785. That marriage was not a legal one, though, and George got married again in 1795 as part of an agreement with Parliament to pay off his debts. This wife was Catherine of Brunswick, who he absolutely hated, to the point that he did not allow her to attend his coronation in 1821. What a gem! Yeah. In the Oxford Dictionary of Nursery Rhymes, the Opies say of all this, quote, as with other of the better-known rhymes, numerous guesses have been hazarded that an historical character is portrayed. As usual, no evidence is vouchsafed. And lastly... Little Miss Muffet sat on a tuffet, eating her curds and whey. There came a big spider who sat down beside her and frightened Miss Muffet away. Uh, Tracy learned this as along came a spider. So did I. This first appeared in print in 1805 in Songs for the Nursery. As with Mary Mary Quite Contrary, which we talked about on a previous installment, some people interpret this as being about Mary Queen of Scots. And in this case, the spider is Protestant reformer John Knox. John Knox was the author of a tract titled The First Blast of the Trumpet Against the Monstrous Regiment of Women, 
which attacked three Catholic queens, Mary I of England, Mary of Guise, Queen Dowager, and Regent of Scotland, and Mary, Queen of Scots. Knox was also a major figure in the Protestant Reformation in Scotland. Catherine Elwes Thomas describes it this way, quote, denouncing the frivolous Little Miss Muffet from the pulpit of St. Giles until the ecclesiastical atmosphere was blue and sulfurous, the big spider with angry brow and darkling mien strode down the cannon gate. Turning sharply to the right, he quickened his pace to enter Holyrood and sitting beside her demanded her recantation. All in vain. Although he could frighten Little Miss Muffet away from her tuffet, as he did eventually, never by expostulation, threat, or entreaty could the big spider induce the French-bred Scotch beauty to recant. Mary was ultimately forced to abdicate and spent the last 19 years of her life as a prisoner before being executed in 1587. Was there conclusive evidence that this poem is about that? No. And others offer a totally different interpretation that this is about English naturalist and physician Dr. Thomas Muffet, who wrote a lot about insects and arachnids, including making an illustrated manual called Theater of Insects. Supposedly, this poem is a reference to one of his stepchildren or children, possibly a daughter or stepdaughter named Patience, specifically. Some accounts go so far as to say that Muffet was tormenting his children or stepchildren, by frightening them with spiders or even doing experiments on them with spider venom. Those poor spiders. Although Muffet was a real person, he died in 1604, 200 years before this poem first appeared in print. Of course, Mary, Queen of Scots, lived even longer ago than that, but she was also a much better-known figure than Dr. Thomas Muffet. There's also some back and forth about what is meant by a tuffet in this poem. Tuffet can mean a hillock or a mound, but it can also mean a footstool. In fact, the Oxford English Dictionary cites Little Miss Muffet as the first written use of tuffet, meaning in, to quote from there, perhaps hassock or footstool. But then the OED has this additional note, quote, doubtful, perhaps due to misunderstanding of the nursery rhyme. The OPs note how similar Little Miss Muffet is to a lot of other rhymes, including Little Jack Horner, which we discussed in our first Mother Goose episode. The poems all involve someone little, Miss Muffet, Jack Horner, Miss Mopsy, Pole Parrot, Tommy Tackett. The subjects of all these poems are all sitting and waiting for something when something else happens. Some of these go back to the early 18th century, so it's possible that they're variations on a little poetic formula. So that's our six impossible Mother Goose episodes for this time around. I hope folks have enjoyed them. I have a little listener mail that is also about the meanings of things. Uh, Liz sent this, and uh, I love the subject of li- the subject line of the email, which is Scott Joplin and the Cakewalk Unlocking a Core Memory. So Liz wrote, Hello, Holly and Tracy. I love the show and have been listening for the past few years. You're always on on my way to slash from work and when doing stuff around the house. I was just listening to the Scott Joplin episode on my way to the store and it unlocked a core memory that was apparently deeply and unknowingly problematic. I'm originally from Texas, nowhere near Texarkana, but if you know anything about Texas, you know that Texans are just ridiculously proud of being Texans. This episode unlocked a series of core memories from elementary school in Austin. 
I remember learning about Scott Joplin in music class. As soon as I saw the title of the episode, I remembered hearing the maple leaf rag and also having to learn a weird dance number for some reason. I assume the teacher focused on him because he was the father of ragtime and also likely a native Texan, an an educational twofer, if you will. Then Holly mentioned a cakewalk, and I had yet another memory unlocked. While at this school, the library hosted a yearly cakewalk. It was organized like musical chairs. Moms donated a cake. We all walked in a circle around some chairs to music and then stopped when the music stopped. The winner got to take home a cake of their choice. So there I was in my car driving to the store and heard Holly mention the cakewalk and that uh, it needed its own explanation. And I laughed and thought, what explanation? I did one every year in elementary school, but then you explained its origins and let me tell you, I screamed. So yes, cakewalks did continue for some time after Scott Joplin's time well into the 1990s. I don't think I thought about the yearly cakewalk in decades, but oh my, what a wild flashback this episode brought on. It made me wonder what other seemingly benign activities I did as a child that have deep roots in racist practices. It's wild to think about it, and I think it highlights why pods like yours are so important. Uh, And then there are some pet pictures. There is a cat, a cat named Etta. I accidentally printed the pictures, except I printed them so big. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna make sure that Holly can see the glory of what I printed by I accident. I think you should frame each of these pages and make a giant art installation of a cat that is six feet tall. Yeah, it's uh, this would be really, really enormous if I had printed the whole cat. But I just have the left eye and ear in what I accidentally printed because I'm just perpetually forgetting to turn off the printing of attachments when I print episodes. And then that makes me feel like an old person who doesn't know how to do email. Um, (laughs) Etta is very cute, by the way. (laughs) Yes, the other two pictures that I actually printed out have no visible animal because of uh, my printer settings. But anyway... There's a final note about being scared to look up the dance that they learned along with Maple Leaf Rag to find out if it also has some connotations. Uh, Liz, first, thank you for uh, sending this note. I am sorry I printed it in such a way that I cannot just tell everybody what your pets look like. Uh, You are not the only person, though, who has had this experience. I grew up. Um, in North Carolina and went to a public school in a somewhat uh, rural to suburban kind of area. And um, our annual, I think it was the Halloween carnival, it was the same one that we talked about in our Crash at Crush episode where they would buy like a beat-up used car and you could pay a dollar to take a swing at it with a baseball bat. Um, There was also a cakewalk every year, and it was very like musical chairs, except if I'm remembering it correctly, it it was laid out with, like, tape on the floor so that you were walking and then something like that. That that is my memory of cakewalks as well. Yeah, so I don't think it was like musical chairs where they take a chair away. I think everybody came to a stop, and then a number was the winning number, and that was who... Got to go get a cake. Uh, We didn't participate in this in my family. Uh, Not because we had any awareness of the history of the cakewalk. We did not. It was just because it was not what my mom wanted to spend money on. She was like, we can make a cake at home. 
I was super ready for your mom's issue to be that she did not know the nutritional contents of the cake. It might have been that, too. (laughs) She might have assumed that none of the other moms, because it would have been mostly other moms doing the baking, maybe not everybody, but... Uh, might have assumed they were not good bakers. Might have, I, there might have been like a random elements to which cake you got. She didn't want to wind up with a cake that we would not like. I don't remember the exact details. I was five. So. <laughs> uh, but yes, yes, lots of places still uh, as of then, which that would have been more like 1980, 81, doing the cakewalk. So, uh, yeah. Other seemingly innocuous things that people may have done in elementary school that I have had on my list to do an episode about for a long time may get to at some point. It may be not. Square dancing. Apparently, there is a whole history of square dancing where people were encouraged to do it at school for racist reasons. So anyway... Uh, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. We're all over social media at Missing History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, Every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more.